This episode is brought to you by Wellforce, offering business consulting and IT solutions for the hybrid workforce. Online at wellforce.ai. Thank you for listening to the Girls Who Do Stuff podcast. Visit girlswhodostuff.com. You probably shouldn't Google that. Welcome to the Girls Who Do Stuff. I am Jenny Midgley. I am Sarah Madras. And this is a show where you come as you are with the courage to speak up and tell a better story. And today's guest is all about storytelling. Yay! Yay! Uh, but books specifically. Nice. Yeah. The pressure's on, Stephanie. You gotta yeah. tell good stories. So, Stephanie Mohika, please <laughs> tell our listeners who you are and what you do. All right. So, my name's Stephanie Mohika. I'm a book editor and book development coach. And what that means is if you're thinking about writing a book, stuck in the middle of writing your book, or just write your book, I can help you out. So, my specialty is helping coaches, consultants, podcasters, and business owners write and publish that book so they can increase their visibility, credibility, and market reach. In other words, stand out in the crowd. So that's what I'm about. And I'm also a digital nomad. Nice. Tell us where you're hailing. Tell us where you're recording from. So I'm in Suriname. It's a very small country in South America a lot of people never heard of. It's near Brazil and Guyana. Nice. And how did you end up there? She's a digital oh, that's nomad. A long I know, story, but, like, but ooh, yeah, I've know. been traveling. Well, a little over two years ago, I left the United States, my country of birth, and just started traveling throughout the Caribbean, and Latin America. But I've been down here longer than I planned because of the pandemic. Gotcha, gotcha. So, when you were choosing this adventure, what made you choose there? Is that a better way to say mm-hmm. it? So I started off in, I went to a few places in the U.S. and Canada, and then I started off in Trinidad, and then I was going to stay in Suriname for three weeks on the way to Brazil, but then where I was going in Brazil, this was in summer 2019, yeah, 2019, had forest fires. So I decided to stay in Suriname longer in the hopes of going to Brazil in March 2020. We all know what happened in March 2020. Yep. So, and I've been to French Guiana, another country a lot of people haven't heard of a couple of times in the middle of all this. Well, not in the middle of the pandemic, but before that. But yeah, my original plan was to make a trail through Northeast South America and the Caribbean and wind up in Brazil. And now with their handling of the pandemic, I don't have any plans to go to Brazil anytime soon. Gotcha. Yeah, we might want to just say, hey, that would fly over. So since you help everybody else with their books, I'm curious if you could only write one book that's from you, not helping others, but yours, what would that one book be? People ask me that a lot. I have written a couple in my name. I've written some under pen names. I've written a bunch of seven as a ghostwriter. And I was actually asking my audiences on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn recently what they would want to hear. Some people want to hear how I've made my business. And some people want to hear all the travel stuff, especially to fairly obscure places. So I haven't decided yet. I'll just be honest if it's going to be like a, the next one's going to be a business book or something about my travels. I think it would be a really cool like integration of talking about like how you built and maintained this business and managed to travel to all these cool places and how those experiences of travel impacted your 
your way of interfacing with clients and like tying that together. I think that'd be cool. I feel like that's one of those professions, right? That like people will go into it and, and I want to be a lawyer or I want to be a teacher. I want to like, and then you go into it and then somebody opens your eyes to like this subset of something that nobody's when they're a little kid. I want to be a book editor when I grow. I want to be a ghostwriter. (laughs) You have to be like exposed to and then recognize that's like going to be your path yeah i would say so actually i was talking to i was doing an interview the other day where they were like how did you become book editor uh, it was just like college being around writers and the family who needed help then like when i was working for newspapers especially the smaller ones having to edit other people's work when the boss wasn't around and things like that mm-hmm If you could, since your degree is in journalism, if you could change things about how journalism is right now, what would you change and why? (laughs) My problem is, I don't want to sound like I'm being exclusive when I say this, so I want to word it carefully. There's a lot of people posting stuff on social media, calling it journalism when it's not. Like, they're just posting things before checking the facts. There's no sense of ethics for a lot of folks. Well, I just saw an article the other day that was like journalism used to be the unbiased holy grail of ethics. And now journalists aren't even bothering to hide their bias. People are like, I'm going to be real about it versus like I'm going to do things the way that they I don't know. I don't even want to say should be done, but do things in a way that is ethical and still provides value. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I'm at toss up because yeah. like Tucker Carlson won a lawsuit because he he was sued and he's my show's not news it's entertainment but mm-hmm. people it's on a news channel yes. so therefore yeah. or a channel that's labeled as news right so people are going to take that because what the news is now is not right what we grew even what we grew up with mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right yep. Yeah, my issue with it is we, even at the smallest newspapers I worked at, because I started off at big papers and as the industry downsized, went down to the small papers. That's not usually how it works. It's usually the other way around. We had to sign an ethics agreement that we could not post political stuff on social media and that we need to be careful what we said about our personal lives. And I see, I do have some friends who are still working journalists. I see one of them volunteering for political parties and being public about it. We weren't allowed to give donations to play. I can give you firsthand information. I'm not going to name names, but there is a newspaper editor in Kentucky who is working for the Libertarian Party as a volunteer and like posting all sorts of libertarian stuff. Mm-hmm. Not, not that I'm saying I'm against, you know, what he's posting. It's just the fact that, that he's the, engaging the, in the that world behavior. has really yeah, changed. It's different now. Yeah. yeah. So in the age, and are you seeing this too, in the age right now of, especially with the, the coaching industry and online businesses and things like that, that it's becoming, and I'm trying to, to, to pick my words carefully so that it's an accurate reflection of my heart's intention, <laughs> that it's becoming very trendy and it's almost, oh, it's really trendy to write a book. So everybody write a book because then that makes you like more... It gives you credibility. It gives you credibility and legitimacy. And talk to me on what your thoughts are on that. Before the pandemic, there were about one million people calling themselves coaches on LinkedIn. When I checked about six weeks ago, there were over six million people calling themselves coaches on LinkedIn. The coaching industry is not regulated. Not that I'm saying certifications to be all end all. I have a few, but it's not the big ones that some people get 
a little snobbish about. They say, I can help you get a six-figure business. Here's my problem. A lot of these people have not had a six-figure business except telling other people how to get a six-figure business. And I have an ethical issue with that. As far as writing the book, I have had clients, like I had one who was delivering Uber Eats and he wanted to have a coaching, speaking business, et cetera. So we spent about a year together really working on his book. It's not just the book that's going to make you really turn down to a platform. We had to do book launch parties. We had to contact the media. He got on the 700 Club, which for him and his niche, it was a holy grail. Got in a lot of like newspapers and things like that. And it depends. Just writing and publishing the book is not necessarily going to guarantee you a bunch of success. It's what you do afterwards and during it too. Because if you just drop it on, let's just say, Amazon for the sake of simplicity, and think a bunch of book sales and people are going to come flock at you, then no. And then you're going to go and say, yeah, so-and-so, I paid so-and-so to help me write the book and nothing happened with it. It's like with any kind of coaching. I can't force you to go do the marketing actions that you need to do. And that's why sometimes coaches get a bad name. Yep. But I also think, I, I think that there's multiple parts of this, right? So it's like all those people that are calling themselves a coach for lack of a better title, right? Like, I've had other people say, aren't you a marketing coach? And I'm like, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do strategy. I, I will educate, but I'm not going to call myself a coach because that's a different mm-hmm. area. And I understand the difference in the titles and I understand the semantics and anyone can call them a coach, call themselves a coach. And I'm not trying to be anyone. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I think that there's that part of it. And then I think there's a part of it that's like for people were especially over the last year, we're told over and over again by all of these other people online that, oh, you have a marketable skill. You can coach other people to do that. Like there, there are several well-known experts that were saying, if you have this, this niche that you're in and you have been successful in it, and maybe it's the difference of how you define success versus those, you know, coaching people to six figures when you haven't gotten six figures, maybe your success was reaching a a certain number of clients or whatever it was. And then that's how you defined it. So then you're going to turn around and and tell other people how to do it. And I think that there's, it's so variable and multifaceted that it, 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 but it's shocking that there were a 600% increase in. That's very shocking. Yeah, It may be more by now. (laughs) Right. And I love what you said about it's not just about, I have two questions to follow up on what you just said, because I love what you said about it's not just, oh, you write a book and then like, ping, it's magic, right? It's all the steps that you have to do afterwards. So one, it's what are those kind of steps afterwards to make it successful? Yeah. And that's why some people say I should call myself a consultant, but for marketing purposes, it seems to be easier to say coach. So I haven't decided all that. So there's some steps you can take. Like for example, people need to be doing podcast book tours. I can't tell you um, how many people just don't ever go talk about their book anywhere. There's people who don't even tell their friends and family. You can send like an email. You don't have to have like email marketing permission to drop email to your friends and family. Tell them I wrote this book, blah, 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 because a lot of people are going to buy it if they, you know, already know, love, like whatever and trust you. Mm -hmm. I find that people are also shy about saying that it exists on social media. There's almost like a fear that they're going to feel like they look arrogant or something. Mm -hmm. 
But, you know, I, even some of my past clients, I see them mention the book on social media like once a year. But even though the book was published five years ago, or just for this example, there's still tons of people that are in your network who haven't, who have joined your network later, who haven't bought it. Because the books I help people write are pretty much evergreen. It's like I've helped people with their memoirs, business books, etc. have edited countless poetry, fiction, etc. So it's not some of my stuff where it was less evergreen and now it's off the market. So it's just it's possible to relaunch your book or just keep talking about it. And then another thing is people aren't contacting the media unless they have somebody like me beating it into them yeah. or doing it for them. Because even if your local newspaper will probably write an article about the fact that you wrote a book, because a lot of people, especially in smaller towns, don't do it. Like one of my clients I was talking about, the one who ended up in 700 Club, he was living in Florida at the time, but he was born in Kentucky. So I said, we need to contact media in Florida where you live now and Kentucky where you were born. And people don't think about things like that without some push. Yes. Love it. Love it. And I think it's really relevant to one of the things that you just said struck me. There are, let's say YouTube, for for example, because you, when you produce content on YouTube, it is just as likely that you're going to have a video that's five years old that will start garnering millions of hits just because of the viral cycles that it will that you can produce a video today that will hit those viral cycles. So it's that same consistency piece, right? Like you have to still be promoting yourself and then people will go and look for the other things that you've done. And so when you've written a book, even if it is, especially if it's evergreen content and to keep putting that out there, every speaking engagement you show up in and you can buy my book and every promote, you know, every appearance you make and you can buy my book because you're right. You don't know when people are going to enter that circle, enter your network there. Yeah. And I think that's so important. Like I want all the listeners to take away, like you don't know when people are finding you. What do you... Exactly. Then with the speaking engagements, I'll just give another example. So most of my clients publish through Amazon, Kindle, and they have a digital copy and a print copy. Mm-hmm. It's called print on demand. So you don't have to pay a bunch of money to have books print up front. Please stay away from people who are telling you to do that. That's just my tip. But seriously, so once you have the Amazon author account, you're the owner of the content. One of my clients loves doing this, especially when there's not the pandemic. He'll order like 100 books at cost, which I think last time I talked to was like $3.86. He'll take it with him to his speaking events. And sometimes he'll sell 100 books at the cover price, which is $15. So he just made $1,200 plus all the other opportunities. Because people love that, especially in person. Now that things are getting back to person, they want to take a selfie with the author. They want him to sign a book. They think that's if you have it in front of them, especially if you have a captive audience, people will buy. It's not like you're asking them to pay 50, 60. It's the grocery lane checkout theory. They put all of that really quick handy stuff at Mm -hmm. the, the, because it's those impulse buys. So after people are are emotionally charged after listening to you speak, they're going to be more likely to buy your book right then and there. Yep. Yeah. Talk to me about the difference between the person who's saying, I have a book inside of me that I have to get out, like that that it's more of an internal thing. And then the people that are like, oh, I want to write a book. I want to write a book and be published so that I can be rich and famous. 
Yeah, I have run into both, and mm-hmm. I've run into some who have accommodation. The person who really wants to get the book out, and it doesn't have to be necessarily an altruistic motive. Some people just really want to get the book out because they want people to know who they are. I'll just be honest. But mm-hmm. some people also have a compelling desire to tell certain stories, and some people, like me, just grew up always knowing they wanted to write a book. So I think the difference is... The people who like worry about the book itself making them rich and famous usually don't, in my experience, please, I don't want anybody to take this personally out there, but in my experience, the people who are focused on the money from the book sales, the followers, the likes, don't write as authentically. Yep. Yeah. And they're, I don't they're, realize they're, they're that editing themselves. They're, they're, they're really worried. Yeah. Exactly. Fact. No. When people are, I'm coaching, they're like, oh, I need to write a book so that, and I'm like, do you want to write a book because you feel like you like, need to get that out of you or do you, and they're like, cause then I'm legit and then I'll make money. And I'm like, them the highest that's what ROI. I said. <laughs> I'm like, the book is not going to make you rich and famous. So your $15 book to be that, let's just, just do, do the, the math. math. That's what I said. <laughs> I'm like, let's just do the math. And so if that's your your cost is $3, then it's really the $12 per book profit. And if you want to be rich and famous, you have to sell a million books (laughs) and be a New York Times bestselling author. Yeah. If you're selling it directly on Amazon, not doing it the way some of my clients do it, you get 70% of the profit after they take out the book fee. So it's eight something a book, which is still good. It's amazing especially compared to those traditional publishers you can get in with them but it's probably not going to make you rich now i will say that in some circles it does give legitimacy and i'll give a couple examples so my one of my coaches i have a couple i am one i am not one of his coaches who believes in selling something that i don't use for myself mm-hmm. but one mm-hmm. of my coaches like loves speaking on the stages that's her thing during the pandemic she really had to revamp her business Things have been on Zoom for like the last, what, year and a half almost. So Mm -hmm. these organizers were getting inundated with requests from people wanting to speak, people calling themselves coaches, etc. And she told me about two events, not going to name names, of course, that they literally had on the application. If you do not have a book or some kind of national media that proves your legitimacy, we will not consider applications. So there is a benefit because it shows you have, you're not just, you didn't just hang your shingle out yesterday because you lost your job and you're right. saying you're mm-hmm. a coach. So there is some legitimacy. It shows you have systems. You should be incorporating client stories, but obviously this is mainly for the coaching industry. So mm-hmm. it just really depends on who you are and what your goals are. I've turned down clients who I could tell really did not want to write a book and were just doing it because their family was begging them to do it or they thought they would become rich and famous. I'm very ethical. If you're telling me you're going to go take out a mortgage, or not that my prices are that high, if you tell me you have to go take out a loan, get, get the credit card out, or I'm feeling, I'm very good feeling people's energy, I'm feeling that you don't want to do it, somebody else is telling you to do it, or yep. you just think it's going to be a magic bullet, yep. I will very lovingly turn you down. Yep, yep, love it. Wellforce, offering business consulting and IT solutions for your hybrid workforce. Do you need business process evaluations and solutions to streamline your workflows? A technology assessment, including security and managed services to optimize performance, or solutions to create a seamless hybrid workplace experience. If that's you, Wellforce has a growing team of affiliates to support your organization's move to hybrid. 
Visit wellforce.ai today. In your entrepreneurial journey, what has been, you're helping people share their truth and speak their truth all the time. So what was something for you that was your truth that you found hard to share and then found the courage to do it? Actually, I've been speaking up more about racism lately. Mm -hmm. I am Latina. I'm also indigenous. My mother is white, Jewish, Irish, a bunch of things. And the past five, six years have been really difficult for people of all minority races. And I think sometimes the issues that Latinx people suffer are compounded by the perception that Latinx people in the United States especially weren't born there, which is not always true. So it adds a layer of complexity because I don't see people, not that I'm there, but I'm still obviously touch people there. I've never seen people rallying around Latinx people and their rights. And mm -hmm. it's really sad. I think there's a perception still that people right. who are Mexican, Honduran, whatever, weren't necessarily, weren't born in the United States, which is patently false. So it's complicated and I, I try not to get crazy political because I don't want to harm my business. But at the same time, I'm also realizing while I've worked with people in the past that didn't have similar beliefs and values to me, I don't think I could do that today. Yeah. Ironically, all my clients today share the exact same values. Yep. So mm -hmm. I think it's coming with that awareness more about of, it. right. Yeah. It's coming from that awareness of like attracts as part of that. Uh, journey, the reason that you started traveling? Yes, like to very kind of much get away. So. I was living in Kentucky. That was the last place I lived in the United States. <laughs> so you, that tells you a lot. There was starting to be <laughs> To our some, Kentucky listeners, we love you. <laughs> and we are not, we would love to visit you in Kentucky. <laughs> oh, most of my best friends are still in Kentucky. I have the, the great love of my life is in Kentucky. We're just friends now. I love a lot of so things called. about Kentucky, but I also, there's a lot of things about it that I don't like. And mm -hmm. I'll just be frank, I think it's 83% of the state voted for somebody who was screaming about building a wall to keep the Mexicans out. Yeah. So well, when and never mind my former partner and I were going places, yeah, when my former partner and I were going places, yeah, people. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not even going to go there. Oh, my God, I'll get ill. But seriously, so my ex-partner and I, who is a tall Kentucky white man, very liberal, by the way, like I said, not everybody meets a stereotype. We would go places and people would start saying stuff to us about it. And it was just very strange. And I was no longer feeling safe. And I was like, I want to go. I'd studied the Caribbean and this part of the world in uh, grad school and knew that the perceptions of race were totally different. So I decided I wanted to go start exploring. The relationship wasn't working out. I was, yep. yeah, I just and I was about to be 40 at the time. So I'm like, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. So I did right. it. Awesome. And it's What's funny because everywhere I've been outside the US, they think I'm a white person just because I'm from the United States. But in my <laughs> home country, my mother's white. Most people are like, oh, it's one of those Mexicans. <laughs> right. You're wow. And I've I'm never. Like, you can't win no matter where. No. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. For you, what have been your biggest takeaways on your travels? My biggest takeaways is that a lot of people are very kind. And they don't really have a fair advantage, say, we do, because of where they were born in the world. 
Another thing is there is a strong perception that all white Americans are rich. Mm, interesting. In these parts of the world, my uh, landlord and I are talking about the day he's a white man from Holland. And we joke, we get the white price. They don't have the prices listed on a lot of things mm. outside the U.S. So the shopkeeper will look at the person and say what the price is. So usually when I need like a car service or something, I will send a local friend of mine to go get it done. And it's usually about a third of what I would have paid. So that kind of stuff bothers me. That's super interesting. That is, yeah. I fit. Yeah. It's like the wedding tax. Yeah. The pink tax. Yes. The pink tax. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Interesting. Fascinating. Interesting. Your experience is is very interesting and very unique to the fact that like you are a woman and a a minority ethnicity within your country of origin. However, and you had to leave your country of origin to go (laughs) somewhere to feel safe. Right. Where you are then treated as, like, the opposite of how you were treated in your country of origin. Like, like I'm trying to wrap my head around it. Yes. And I feel like that's the logic, right? Like, it just, it's mind-boggling. I'll tell you a story. So, a friend of mine and I decided to go to French Guiana. She's a black Surinamese citizen. And we were not told by Surinamese authorities that she needed a visa to enter French Guiana. Because there's been problems with uh, illegal immigration from Suriname to French Guiana. So we get to the border and they're trying to send her back. And I was able to talk the police office, police officers into letting her in the country. And they didn't think I understood what they were saying in French, but they said, it's a rich white lady. I really don't think she's trying to sneak this girl into the country. Just let them go. She, the girl's probably getting paid to travel with the slave, which was not true, oh, wait, by the way. I did cut the expenses. That, it was your lady's maid so traveling the, with you. Yeah, to, that's pretty you much know. what they were. That's pretty much what they're adding. So they're like, okay, just don't do it again. Next time we're going to remember because it's a small border in a small right. country. They're like, they're like, have a good trip. And wow, we were just, it was mind boggling because they were ready to send her back until I stepped up with my American passport and my white skin. Oh my God. That's it is. It's my. I feel like we could have so many more conversations about just like oh, the dichotomy <laughs> of that and the differential that like how do you reconcile that? And what impact does that have on you? To me, that right. has to have an impact. It makes me feel bad for her that people are assuming that she's up to no good, that she's just like somebody's maid or something. It makes me feel bad about that. But does it? Yeah, also, I mean, white like, privilege is white privilege is very real. And I never experienced it in my own country, but I experienced it here. Technically, I'm a minority, but because I'm perceived as of a superior race, it, it ties into colonialism. It ties into slavery. Yes. These are things I've studied ethnically as well. It's extremely complicated. It's, yes. Every U.S. dollar I make is twenty-four local dollars. Wow. But I know people here who make fifteen local dollars an hour. So, yeah, by their standards, I'm very rich. I'm not by mine because I can't go purchase a home. The prices of home ownership in this country are exorbitant compared to the local economy. So it's set up where so it's only just like the US. really rich foreigners. <laughs> it's set up where like rich foreigners can are the only ones who can buy property. 
And unless you wanted to live far outside the capital city and out in the jungle, which people do, but it's just, it all relates to colonialism and slavery. And it's a very complicated thing that will probably take a lifetime to unpack. Yep. Yep. It's fast. I I love these conversations. Yep. I really do because yeah, I feel like we can, I don't usually talk you know, really about unpack. these things. <laughs> Maybe that's yeah. your next book, Stephanie. Let's talk about all of these weird things that happened when you traveled. That right. all of a sudden you went from the non-privileged to the privileged and the yeah. bananas. Anyway, all right, this has been like a fascinating conversation. What's next for you as far as the next steps or and other than you writing a book? What's some fun things that are coming out? I will be doing a start a podcast near the end of the year. It'll be called Get Their Attention Now with Stephanie Mojica. It's going to, I haven't ironed out all the details yet, but it's probably going to be geared toward authors or aspiring authors. So that's coming up. I have a group and one-on-one programs. I have a group one called Six Months from Book Idea to Final Chapter. We'll be doing a summit probably November. That'll be geared probably toward coaches and such looking for leads or different ways to find leads. So yeah, if you're interested in finding out about the stuff, you can find me on Instagram. You can check out my free ebook, Three Things You Must Know Before Writing Your Book, which is at gettheirattentionnow.com slash book. Gettheirattentionnow.com slash book. And yeah, I'm all over Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, very active Clubhouse. Clubhouse. Checking out this new app. The day we're recording this, there's a brand new app called Green Room. It's 40 hours old. Not wild about it yet, but I, so I'm probably going to stick to Clubhouse, but it is curious because it's linked to Spotify. And I do have podcasters for clients because I'm helping some folks turn their podcast transcripts into books. Nice. So I'll probably devote like maybe. 30 minutes to an hour a day to green room. But yeah, clubhouse is usually where I'm at. That's really been successful for me. Cool. Mm-hmm. That's how we found her. Yeah. I know. That's how Stephanie and I became connected. It was in a room with Jenny right now. and Lex. Nice. So nice. if you listen to their episode. Yeah. And I was just, yeah, they work for me now. They're helping me put on my summit. And then I was in Allison's summit and I might be in Jenny's summit. Yeah. And I think Allison's going to hire me to turn her podcast. It's just a into giant family. Trans- it is. So it's awesome. Just, I love yeah. it. Love it. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining us today. We had a blast. It was very eye-opening as well. Thank you for always bringing the truth. Connect with us at girlswhodostuff.com. Subscribe to our email list for fun announcements and leave us a review. It helps other people find our stuff. We would be so grateful to you for taking those actions so we can get this out into the world and change more lives. I am Jenny Midgley. I am Sarah Madras. And and you you do you, you, boo. We love making this stuff for you. You can help us out by subscribing to this podcast and follow us on social media.